0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify how that is spelled, you can join us online on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com that's c-a-l-v-a-r-y christianfellowship.com, and there we'll have it spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen if you click on the Watch Live tab. There you can not only get a countdown clock to the next time we are broadcasting, but if you're joining us from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S., you can also send us your questions live on the chat box that's also on the right-hand side of the screen. If you prefer social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is A Reason for Hope. We are streaming there as well, but who knows for how long or under what circumstances we'll be barred from that. We want to make sure that you still have access to us if they take us down, and if it's not technical issues on our end, note that they can't ban us on our own platform. So feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and there we'll be happy to not only receive but answer your Bible questions if they meet the following criteria. First, they are sincere, meaning that when you ask the question, you also want to hear the answer. Two, that they are about the Bible, the substance of the question and the answer will both involve Scripture. And, of course, that it is asked in the form of a question. We'll be happy to address it with an answer. That being said as well, we like to take our Thursdays or Fridays, for those of you listening on Reach Radio or our radio affiliates, to the topic of rhetoric or communication, so we'll be beginning with that, but don't let that deter you. If you have your Bible questions, send them to us, and we will dedicate as much time as the broadcast, uh, I guess, constraints allow with the time that we have. But before we dare make an attempt to do so, we want to make sure the Lord is the one who is speaking and giving us the right heart as well as words. Peter, would you like to ask him to be a part of the broadcast?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for everything that you do for us. We do pray that we can dedicate this time to you to focus on your word and truth. Uh, Let that be the thing that edifies us and grows us, um, and allow me and Sean to speak in a way that honors your truth, Lord. In your name, amen. That is true.
0: Now, for this week in rhetoric, we're going to be discussing, once again, something that comes up a lot more often than it should, and that is the fallacy of equivocation. When it comes to communicating with people, we always, of course, inform you that you need to listen to what's being said. But listening doesn't always mean understanding, because people who either unintentionally or intentionally through manipulation or just a common mistake maybe they've heard this from someone else and are confusing the terms because their idea is more at the forefront of their mind they will mix words meanings with each other but use the same word in english this is especially hazardous because our language is chock full of these things where unintentionally we can say one word and it has a plethora of (coughs) meanings and without clarifying our terms then we end up, I guess, uh, saying either the opposite of what we intended or catching someone in a mistake that's unfair to them because they were understanding us to mean the same thing for using the same word. Now, when it comes to equivocation, obviously there are things we need to be aware of when it's used against us, but also things we need to be aware of, more importantly, when using them. And of course, it should all start with the dictionary, should it not?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and like some of our more recent rhetoric lessons, uh, if you notice, we started with the ones that were more could have been done by accident. We're moving more and more into the ones that have to have some amount of intent in order to perform. Uh, Now it is possible to perform this, uh, this fallacy accidentally, but it's much more rare. It's much more common to do this one intentionally. So what it means is taking a word in one context and interpreting it in a completely different context. So there are many examples that I could give, but let me give a a really common one that's happening right now in the political worldview. So uh, there is this word, word, it's called disinformation. You may have heard of it before. Now disinformation means something very specific. It means that a foreign nationality or a foreign entity that is hostile to us is intentionally sowing false information into our news sources, our news outlets, in order to rig elections, or to uh, disrupt our political system, or to disrupt the country as a whole. That's disinformation. disinformation is a very powerful propaganda tool. It has been utilized throughout human history, actually. It's nothing new. And it is illegal, right? If there was a foreign entity, like say Russia or China or North Korea, that was filtering false information into Twitter or YouTube or Facebook and intentionally trying to disrupt our country, that would be bad and it ought to be shut down. So disinformation is bad. It has nothing to do with free speech. However, a new word has popped up that is intentionally similar to disinformation, misinformation. Now, misinformation basically just means anything that could be false. Now, the problem with that is that if you're going to have free speech alive and well inside of a culture, people have to be willing and able to say things that may or may not be true and it's not right or correct for some sort of an authoritative figure to assume intent, to assume you're intentionally disinforming people, you're intentionally spreading information that's falsifiable in order to correct people, uh, in order to corrupt people or to disrupt the society as a whole. You don't know that. And beyond that, these people aren't from foreign governments or entities, so they can't be uh, qualified in that way. But many politicians are using this word misinformation and disinformation interchangeably. That's an equivocation error. And it's actually not only is it the equivocation fallacy, but it's taking it one step further where they're intentionally Misidentifying words. They're intentionally util- utilizing words that sound like one another in order to misinform, <laughs> ironically. So now, one
0: consonant, and we've already made a jump between a criminal and usually wartime effort and offense into something that's used for censorship, for political gain.
1: Exactly. Uh, let me give you another couple of uh, common ones that are alive and well right now, and then me and Sean will talk about a biblical example, and we'll give you possible ways to maybe skirt around the equivocation fallacy to, to be able to figure it out. Uh, another reason, by the way, before I get into these others, another reason why this is so dangerous is because the main por- purpose of communication is to understand one another. That's why God gave us language. And if you remember, the first empire that rose and fell in the Bible is Babylon. Why did Babylon fall? It's because God confused their language. When language is utilized as a weapon, it causes societies to crumble, right? Whatever, however big those societies are, whether it's a culture and society of a family unit or it's a culture and society of a country, when language is confused, that culture can't stand for very long. We have to have common language in order to be able to communicate. So uh, another common one that's used, uh, I'll use ones from both the right side of the political aisle as well as the left side of the political aisle. Uh, so this is one from the left side of the political aisle. This is uh, what we call cancel culture. So it's pulling out any, uh, any literature that we find offensive nowadays. So one of the books that's on the chopping block, it's been on the chopping block since I was in high school, is Huckleberry Finn. Now, Huckleberry Finn is a very pro-abolitionist book, actually, where you have a white Southern boy freeing a black slave, and it's uh, it's actually really good. It's actually a very good book written by Mark Twain. But because the N-word is utilized in it, it's considered to be banned. Now, the problem is, is that what the N-word meant when Mark Twain was writing it means something very different than the way that we use it today. So the way that people use it today, especially people who aren't black, they use it as an insult. They use it as a degradation term. I'm degrading you. I am stealing your humanity. And at the time that Mark Twain wrote this word, it was common parlance. Everybody used the word. And in fact, the way he uses it, it's actually not intended to be offensive. You can tell that the way it's being utilized is not intended to be offensive. To modern ears, very offensive because our understanding of that word has shifted over time. Right. That's and the utilization of it is very inconsistent. Ironically, yeah, that is true too. Uh, another another one from the left side of the aisle. This would be any type of denial, COVID denial, climate denial, Holocaust denial, things like that. Now, the reason why they're using these words, COVID denial and climate denial, is because they are equivocating it with Holocaust denial. They are intentionally making people think of Holocaust denial. And that is something that is so obviously true that only a conspiratorial nut would deny it. And that's why they utilize that language. Uh, another one that's interesting is the big lie. You may have heard that before. Now, the big lie is a direct reference to Hitler. right? <laughs> There's a reason why they're utilizing that. Most people who utilize it don't realize that by saying the big lie, you're putting yourself in Hitler's shoes uh, because Hitler is the one that said it. <laughs> he wasn't. Uh, Hitler wasn't the one accused of making the big lie. He was the one making the accusation of the big lie. The uh,
0: thought that his National Aryan Socialist Party was the answer to those lies.
1: That's right. In uh, the right side of the aisle. Now, the right side of the aisle. We tend to use, uh, people on the right side of the aisle can utilize things that are true, but they uh, they misappropriate them. So for instance, uh, gender ideology. Some people are so, obsessed with gender gender ideology, that they misappropriate things into gender ideology categories that actually aren't. It doesn't make them good. It just means that they don't belong in that category because they know that it's just a classification that most people on the right will immediately have a visceral reaction to. That's bad. Critical race theory is another one. So again, it's not that critical race theory isn't real. It is real. Maybe one of these Tuesdays, me and Sean will go over exactly what it is and where it comes from. But oftentimes it's just I don't like this, so I'm going to call it critical race theory. I had a uh, a Christian teacher at our church, very wonderful woman, and uh, someone was accusing her of teaching critical race theory because she was teaching the truth about slavery. Now, uh, and when I say slavery, I mean the black African slave trade that existed in the continental United States. Now, she wasn't...
0: Institutionalized by Islam, by the
1: way. yeah, Yeah, there's many things we can say about that. But at any rate... This was someone who was just like, essentially, I just don't like what you're teaching. I don't know how to accuse you of doing something wrong, so I'm just going to use this word against you in when order that's to... that's not what the word means. When that's not what the word means, right? Just like the princess bride. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so that's, that is the equivocation fallacy in a nutshell. In interpersonal relationships, this is the biggest one that I see as a Christian counselor. Abuse. So when you're doing marriage counseling, most marriage counselors within the church would agree that abuse, if not a qualification for divorce, would at least recommend separation and severe consequences for abusive behaviors within a marriage. Uh, I am actually of the uh, predisposition to believe that genuine abuse – could qualify for a biblical divorce. But without getting into that, if you have questions about why I think that way, you go ahead and ask. Read Malachi. Who knows that, but. <laughs> but at any rate, because of that, people have now broadened the term abuse to incorporate all sorts of things. So they say, well, he was emotionally abusive to me. Now, that's a real thing, but okay, give me a definition. How is he emotionally or she emotionally abusive to me to you? Well, you know, there was this one time we were arguing and he yelled at me. Or there was this other time where she called me an idiot. Like, okay, that's not nice, but it's not emotional abuse. Right someone in the heat of the moment throwing out a name is not emotional abuse uh, especially if they apologize for it later right that this is just in the heat of the moment saying something stupid now you could say it's an abusive behavior but it has to incorporate a longer term propensity or a larger scale in order to be qualified as emotional abuse same with like physical abuse well he's never hit me per se but there was this one time where we were in an argument and I was holding on to something and he was holding on to it and he tugged on it and that's that's physical abuse well they, you know that's uh, that's a hard sale. That's that's not exactly physical abuse. So that's another one that we see all the time, or an affair. People will say, like, well, Jesus says that to lust after a woman in your heart is affair or adultery of the heart. Therefore, he lusted, and therefore he committed adultery. Well, it's like, ah, eh, that's not really what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about sexual immorality being a, pre, uh, uh, a pre-existing condition that could result within a divorce. The Bible is talking about physical adultery, adultery, or it's talking about lustful behavior that's abusive to the point that it would uh, consummate that. So for instance, if uh, if someone is watching Pornography for like nine or nine hours a day, or something like that, or they're constantly degrading their wife's looks and comparing them to other women. There are behaviors that would constitute that without physically committing adultery. But again, there's a magnitude in mind there when you use language like that. When you say, He committed adultery. She cheated on me. Um, he was abusive. She was abusive, right? When you use language like that, there's an intent behind the language and you're equivocating, you're utilizing a word. In a sense, that is not intended in order to get your way, right? In order to win an argument. But that's the whole point,
0: is the intention is to utilize not what's happening, but the emotions associated with a word in order to make your case. So if you're talking to someone who's using terms, either A, unnecessarily, or B, overemphasizing the severity of the detail beyond what's reality, you need to be able to spot that and properly deal with it. Now, if someone is using equivocation unintentionally or otherwise, they have the same solution, do they not.
1: Yeah, they do. So let me give you Jesus's encounter with this fallacy and how he addresses it. So this is Matthew chapter 15 and verse three. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. Okay, so this is what was happening. The Pharisaical kind of branch or sect of Judaism at the time had come up with a workaround so the word honor when you when you see that in the Bible it does mean to give obeisance or respect or things like that but it actually has a very literal definition and that is to give monetary honor that's how you you see it utilized this way frequently throughout the Bible it talks about honoring that the elders that rule over you are worthy of double honor uh, and again he's talking about the compensation that elders are worthy of uh, Paul talks about giving honor to the government placed above them in Romans chapter 13. Once again, he's talking about paying taxes, right? So there's a very literal definition to this word, but it does encompass more than just paying, uh, you know, paying money to somebody. Now, when Jesus is looking at this, they're saying, well, you know, we follow the commandments. We're doing all these things. And Jesus says, well, there's a really clear commandment in the Bible. It says, honor your father and mother. Now, the way that they worked around it is they said, well, what's more honoring to your father and mother than to dedicate your all to God? And so, yes, you're not really giving the money directly to your parents, but by taking the money that you were going to use to provide for them in their golden years and giving it to the temple, aren't you doing a greater service to them? Aren't you honoring them even more? And Jesus says, no, the word honor means to pay them. And it says to honor your father and mother. He says, you are, you are taking a word and you're molding it to your view as opposed to molding it to what was intended. So notice what Jesus does. He calls out the equivocation that's being made. He says, this is the word you're using, and then he goes back and he says, this is what the word means. Now in an argument, it's okay, and I've I've told people this before when I'm in conversations with them, I don't mind if you use this word in this particular way, but define your terms if you're going to use this word in this way, be consistent about it. Just keep using it this way and we'll just know that this is what you mean. Don't use it one way in one context and then shift the meaning in the very next context. Unless you specify beforehand, and that's what's most important. Clear communication is
0: the goal, not manipulative or at least unintentional misinforming. Remember that word?
1: (laughs) That's right. So this is, again, a very simple one. You just have to directly call it out. Hey, you know what? I'm a little confused. You can even give people the benefit of the doubt, be a little nice about it. Say, hey, you know, I, uh, you're using this word. I'm not really sure what you mean because you're using it in different ways, in different contexts. Like, what do you mean by this word? When you say this, what, what do you mean by that? And uh, if, by the way, you'll know very quickly if you're dealing with someone who is uh, arguing with you on good faith terms as opposed to not so good faith terms because if they're arguing with you on good faith terms, they'll try to clarify what the confusion is. If they're not, then they will be like, well, what are you talking about, right? They might gaslight you, be like, I never used that word, or like, you use that word, or they might accuse you of something, they might project, they might diffuse. They might give you a definition and then immediately go back to using the fallacy, right? So this will... This is actually a good test to see if you're arguing on good faith terms with somebody. And you don't want to
0: talk to someone who either A, isn't listening or B, isn't actually talking. They're just speaking. So make sure in any communication that's taking place, you pay careful attention to how you're using words and avoid the mistake that Paul the Apostle warned his disciple Timothy of at literally the end of his first epistle. This is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. People can use terms like, the science says. People can use terms like, well, it's been proven. What's your evidence? Well, that's just faith and not mean what you mean. The first and most important goal in using unique terms should be to make sure it clarifies your meaning, not muddies the water. So to avoid equivocation, either use simpler terms Or make sure that if you're going to use a term with different meanings, especially in English, you clarify, this is what I mean, and you spell that out for them. If, on the other hand, they're not willing to return that, then make sure you aren't either A, wasting their time or yours with conversations that aren't actually happening. Or even more importantly, you take advantage of the opportunity to learn how to spot those things as the mistakes are either being made or being covered up, because we don't want to, again, make the same mistake twice. And that is, of course, miscommunication. Make sure that in the equivocation error, it's all centered and found on defining your terms, and that is something we should be very eager to do in a world where so many emotions are assumed into words, when in reality we're just saying things. So let us know if that's all clear. Anything more to say before we move on to our questions?
1: Uh, one, one last thing. Uh, I forgot to mention this in my examples, uh, but it's very important for apologetics, especially when you're talking to uh, people who are secular, atheists, things like that. Words like slavery that occur in the Bible are big ones, right? You know, do you see that a lot at the SWAT meet? People saying like slavery or uh, concubinage and things like that?
0: Not as recently as it would seem, but when talking to people, of course, again, emotive terms. Racism. The Bible invented racism. The Bible invented slavery. The Bible tells you to beat your slave, or parents, you're supposed to beat your children. That, again, it means something very different, but it's used in multiple ways to mean the same thing, because it appeals to a much more reactive response. And that's the whole point. We don't want to communicate something to someone or be told something that isn't true just because they use the word, and that's something to be aware of as well. So thank you all for this lesson in rhetoric and the time you've invested (coughs) in it. I hope you get a chance to practice it, hopefully not too many, but (laughs) we'll be here again next week to discuss more on this very topic. Now, going out to our Bible questions, a quick YouTube clarification who said, they notice we do regular updates on current events for Israel. What is it that you are watching for, and does that concern tie into Bible prophecy? Uh, Yes, uh, to the individual asked the question, when we do our prophecy updates, they usually center around Israel because of a very accurate biblical statement that was made by Don Stewart. He said, when it comes to God's prophetic calendar, Israel is the hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount is the second hand. When it comes to events of God's restoration for mankind, we start with Daniel 9.24, where it basically lays out, for you and your people, God has set out 490 years to ultimately restore mankind's relationship with God. That's a paraphrase, but follow the point. When we see that event getting closer and closer, or those years beginning to begin, they're going to center around the nation of Israel. So anything prophetic is going to start with them, but not exclusively of them. Jesus also said in Matthew 24 that the signs of the times would be wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilences in various places, false teachers and false Christ rising up and deceiving many, and so forth. So if it's prophetically significant, it'll involve those things, not just them in of themselves, but a frequency and intensity like Paul the Apostle and the Prophet but Daniel both noted as increasing in intensity and frequency, like a woman in labor. Uh, we also—and the, the Apostle Peter said that as well—we uh, would also note, uh, as far as current events involving Russia and Iran— that's more in line with Ezekiel 37, and th- or 38 and 39, rather. is um, involved with Israel, too, prophetically, but that's more in the Messianic movement. We want to keep our eyes on those things and inform you of those things because they are, in fact, prophetically significant, but prophesying what is the question, and that is the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which we're commanded in the book of Titus chapter 3 to always be looking for and even hastening the coming. How do we do that? Through evangelism through spiritual growth in our own lives, and of course, a daily expectation of that. So let us know if that answers your question. Um, Yari has a question, is financial abuse grounds for divorce?
1: Yeah, no, it's a very good question. Um, Financial abuse is not a terminology I would use, because um, when you're talking about abusing funds, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with using that term, but Usually when we're talking about abuse, we're saying that we're harming somebody. So there are ways that I can harm somebody utilizing my finances. So for instance, if a husband was, say, preventing his wife from accessing any of the money in their accounts and he was spending all the money on stuff that he wanted and he wasn't even feeding her or taking care of her and her daily sustenance, that would be financially born abuse, right? So he he is abusing her by keeping her from having regular sustenance but he's using the finances to do so so um i I would clarify that someone mismanaging funds is abusing their pocketbook, but it's not necessarily abusing the person in the same way that you would abuse someone's personage by yelling at them, demeaning them on a regular basis, uh, by gaslighting them, manipulating them, conditioning them to be afraid of certain things, uh, or beating them in some particular way. And that's in
0: reference to Malachi, (coughs) which we would consider grounds for divorce. But this isn't a, you know, you financially abuse this person, therefore it's divorce. It would be a certain step on that direction. It would be a symptom of what could ultimately culminate in grounds for divorce, but not in of itself. What would be some of the other factors?
1: Yeah, so it would have to be, again, it would have to be a severe enough behavior for there to be large amounts of dysfunction, and this is what I always tell couples uh, when when we're going through couples counseling or marital counseling in, in a biblical context the main problem that a lot of Christians have is they don't understand uh, rules of engagement and escalation of force. So when I was in the military, there's rules of engagement, right? There's rules of how do you fight when things happen, and then there's escalations of force, meaning if this is what's happening, this is the level of force that I'm allowed to utilize. So cops have to learn this, military members have to utilize this as well, because though we carry lethal means, that should be a last resort. So when we're interacting, when we were in afghanistan interacting with the public if somebody was just yelling at us we're not going to pull out a gun and shoot him in the face you know now if they're yelling at us and waving like a rock which they could throw that is a weapon now we might point a weapon at them we might yell at them back and say if you don't drop that something's going to happen to you right but that's not going to immediately result in lethal force now the reason why i bring that up and if they have a weapon that
0: only is used for lethal force that's that's
1: signed on the Geneva Convention, you know. <laughs> drop them. That's right. The reason why I bring that up is because I don't think that a lot of Christians enter into marriage knowing what rules of engagement are and what the escalations of force are. I think most people entering into marriage, they the only escalation of force they know about is divorce. So it's like the it's like the cop who's just slapdash training they go out there and all they got is a gun and they don't know what they're doing and then all of a sudden some amount of force is presented to them and they just shoot someone in the face you know like not I'm not saying that that happens I'm just saying that, that if that happened that could be a reasoning for it someone who's not adequately explained to what escalation of force is how to utilize it appropriately and things like that now in marriage again I see this happening where there's tension with there's conflict in a marriage like let's say for instance there is a husband who is the sole provider of a home right he he alone is the breadwinner he makes all the money and he had this career for many years before he met his wife so he had his own finances in order things like that the wife's coming into the marriage she didn't have any finances she's bringing into the marriage and so the husband feels entitled to that account and so he unilaterally determines how the money is being spent without confiding in his wife is that bad yes is it abusive no now at that point The wife needs to address that issue, but does she know how to do it? So most women are just waiting for the husband to cross a particular line in which divorce would be a required response, and they just kind of put up with abusive behavior, not abusive behavior, but bad behavior, uh, mistreatment for long periods of time, not knowing how to assert themselves. In a way that's loving and can actually cause a change within the dynamics of the relationship. So or maybe even instigating it so that they can justify leaving the relationship. That's th- another fact you have to consider. Exactly. So the the essential, the basic escalations of force are this. If you see a problem within your marriage, something that bothers you, the first step is you must go to that person, right? Matthew 18, you gotta go to that person, tell them what is bothering you, why it is bothering you, put it in you terms, not accusatory terms. In other words, don't say, you always do this. You're terrible. You don't care about me. Instead, say, you're doing this. This is how it makes me feel, right? This is the effect that it's having on me in the relationship. And this finances, is why I would like emotions, you to stop. time, whatever. Exactly. If they don't listen to you, then the next step is, hopefully you're a part of a church, hopefully you're a member of a congregation, you could bring that to the church leadership. You could say, this is what's happening inside of my marriage, I'm really bothered by it. Now you could bring that up to your partner and say, like, this is really bothering me, I want a mediator, would you be willing to go in for biblical counseling? They say no, if you're a member of a church, go to the church leadership and tell them that. Be like, hey, this is what my spouse is doing, they're refusing to listen to what I'm asking them to do, would you be willing to come and, and talk to them with me, right? And in which case I would say, yes, I would. Uh, then, then after that, if they continuously... Uh, ignore you, then there are consequences you could bring about within the context of marriage. There are things like in-house separation, out-of-house separation. There's even legal separation. In the case of money mismanagement, sometimes that is necessary because legal separation actually allows for you to separate the funds, especially if you're dealing with a a spouse who, let's say I've I've counseled spouses who are uh, gambling addicts, right? So they're, they're massively blowing out the spending within their home, right? Everything will be going fine, and then they'll drop thousands of dollars at the casino, right? Sometimes you need to segregate the funds if it gets that bad. So there are things you can do before divorce. Remember, divorce is like amputating a limb, right? If you go into the doctor and you say, I got a little pain in my leg, and they're like, well, let's lop it off. Get a new doctor, right? Divorce is the absolute last thing that we want to go to. It is only necessary When if I don't divorce you, the damage to my being and the beings of those around me is going to be so unbelievably destroyed by this behavior that it's going to be irreconcilable, right? That kind of, that's why the level that we see presented to us in the Bible of divorceable offenses include things like abandonment by a non-believer, sexual immorality, and then there are slight allusions to abusive behaviors in Malachi chapter 2. But as a pastor, what I take those things as, as a standard, whatever the behavior has to be, it has to meet that level of magnitude within the behavior. So again, there are many things that I feel like could lead to divorce within a relationship, but the behavior would have to reach that level of magnitude. It couldn't just be in and of itself, well, he said this, and that's kind of abusive, that's incorporating abusive behavior, so therefore it's abusive and I'm going to divorce him. Well, no, there has to be a particular magnitude present in order to allow that. Yeah.
0: So again, to keep this issue in mind, we would say no to the answer. Financial abuse is not grounds for divorce but it does categorically put you in a grounds for divorce if, as you said, it escalates beyond that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he notes very explicitly Paul the Apostle speaking to Thessalonica, if a man doesn't provide for the needs of his own household, then he is denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. So doesn't mean there are salvations invalidated, let me clarify that. But categorically, in terms of church discipline, they would be considered a non-believer. Then, if abandonment a la 1 Corinthians chapters 5-7, through uh, happens that as a non-believer, categorically they abandon their spouse further, then that would be grounds for divorce, but not the financial abuse or neglect itself. So make sure that that's properly understood, Yari. And for those listening, if you need further clarification, as we said, this is not a copy-and-paste issue in resolution. There are issues that are very much easier to deal with than this, but when it comes to it, it's a lot easier to adjust and correct and amend than it would be for, say, sexual or physical abuse. that We'd have a much more straightforward answer. Let us know if that helps. A question from Dwayne, who has a question if it's okay to see movies based in the Bible that doesn't get things right. Well, that's pretty much every movie, Dwayne, because the Bible's not really the kind of collection of books that you can put into a movie. The goal of movies is for as much entertainment as it is uh, to engage on particular topics, whereas with the Bible, there is a definite goal in mind to set a narrative in play, but you're literally portraying real life. So when we're asked the question, why is it that you, when, say, focusing on the historical event of you can just name an example, Pearl Harbor, why you focused on this specific pilot or this specific issue or element as far as the uh, Japanese and American relationships that were going on, or why was the broader narrative of World War II not also addressed? It's a movie, it's not reality. So when presenting the Bible, obviously things either by omission or through neglect or maybe the blind sides or blind spots rather of the writers and directors will end up missing some key elements and points the bible in of itself can't be put into a movie but many people have tried now some have failed like we could give examples, I won't to be nice, but uh, the point being made is some have tried to succeed, and the point that it needs to be taken to, much like in the studies I do on YouTube discussing non-biblical themes that have biblical parallels in them, my goal in the conversation is not to say this is the Bible, it's to use this to point you to the Bible. So here's where watching movies based on the Bible are okay is that it points you to the real deal, and it encourages you to seek that out on your own. My father and I, and Peter I'm sure would agree, we give a two-thumbs-up support to movies like Prince of Egypt because before a single panel of animation and before a single song note is made by the DreamWorks studios that produced it, they say the real story is found in the Book of Exodus. Read that this is an artistic adaptation so when people are wondering you know why is it that this uh, relationship between moses and ramesses and was ramesses the ki- uh, pharaoh of egypt and so forth dreamworks specified go to exodus if you want to know what happened or if on the other hand you were to see well films that just advertise themselves it's just this is just the bible and my dad and i are just wondering well, they got the names right, but that's about it. That's the whole point. That's the whole difference. People who would substitute entertainment and TV for the Bible are making a mistake because they're missing the whole point as to why we were given Scripture. That's why, uh, to quote Ravi Zacharias, God didn't say in the beginning there was video. There was In the beginning there was the Word. That's what's being emphasized for communication of God's nature. So make sure that that's understood, Dwayne. As far as things being okay, again, there's nothing wrong with seeking entertainment you know relaxing with those sort of things and if it doesn't have generally the sort of uh, garbage and perverse messages that we see more and more prevalent in today's media and entertainment age all the more power to you that's not good or bad it's just happening but if on the other hand you'd say well i'm watching this movie because i want to be edified be careful, because if that's where it ends, that's the problem. If it points you to the Bible, that's great, but notice it's not a step one, step z- uh, step end process. I think that's how I would say that. Is there anything more you don't want to
1: add? Yeah, I try, I try not to talk too much about biblical movies, because I tend to be kind of negative, so just, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. That's all I got to say on that. <laughs> all right. Um, question from Mac: Can someone be good, nice, or kind, but doesn't believe in Jesus as Lord, and then be saved? So, could someone just be good enough for heaven?
1: Uh, simple answer is no. Uh, Galatians chapter two. So this is this is kind of the the best place that we get. I mean, there's Galatians two is really good. I would also encourage you to read through Philippians three and Paul's conversion story, but in Galatians two. Paul is talking about the Jewish culture and how god sees it so in galatians 2 verse 15 he says we who are jews by nature and not sinners of the gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in jesus christ even we have believed in christ jesus that we might be justified in by faith in christ and not by works of the law for by works of the law no flesh shall be justified so paul's very clear that there is no ethical framework that you can give mankind so he's pointing to the law and he's saying what What better ethical framework could someone have than a law given by God himself to a nation that he created uh, through people that he chose out of the nations uh, personally? And obviously the answer is none. You couldn't get any ethical framework that's better than that, you know? No other great moral teacher ever could create an ethical framework better than what's contained for us in the Old Testament. So Paul's saying if that wasn't sufficient enough to bring us to God, right? If Jesus had to come as a Messiah to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, doesn't that prove that ethical behavior could not save you? You could never be good enough for God because God is infinitely good. Right? So no matter how good somebody is, no matter how much righteousness they attain to inside of their life, it is always going to pale in comparison to infinity. So they'll never be able to achieve God's level righteousness through words or actions. Everybody is saved by faith. Now, that being said, there are insinuations or intimations within the Bible that people who did not have knowledge of the gospel, right? People who lived in an area where they just never heard about Jesus, they never heard about God in the Judeo-Christian framework. They'd be without the law. Right, they're without the law, and so God's going to judge them as without the law. Now, again, you can work through it in your own mind of what exactly is going on. Again, I'm speaking a little bit about, out of speculation here, so I want to be very clear about that. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul seems to suggest that even Gentiles, no matter what law they're trying to live under, they can't live up to that law, right? So no matter what law you have, whether it's God's law or man's law, you're just never going to be able to achieve it because we fall short. So he talks about people in their conscience knowing what the laws of God are to a certain extent and failing even that, right? Failing even their own conscience. So... In that case, people who have never heard of the gospel—they still need to be saved by some methodology of grace through faith. And How will saved that work? From
0: what? The whole point: their right. guilt before God and sin, whether it's to their own conscience or to their conscience before God, given the revelation that they have. But notice that in every single category, your question phrases it properly, Mac can they be saved? Well the question is, saved from what? If they're under the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. You don't make up for that by being nice, by being kind, by being a morally virtuous person any more than a person who's been a serial killer in their history but has been completely reformed, they just never got caught, is now suddenly free from the guilt of the lives they've taken. The point being made is that, Mac, when we're Put in a place where we need saving, it's not a place we can say to save ourselves. We need to be saved. The only one who accomplished a literally feat capable of saving an infinitely offensive act against God, which is sin, was God himself. And for a person to reject that is literally the one and only category that will put us with or without God forever. What have you done with his son? If you said, I was better than your son. Well, that's just insulting and false. If you say, I don't need your son, that's not only blasphemous, but false. If I say, I only have your son, that's not only acceptable, but that's also true. Note the point. Yeah, it's good. All right, so (laughs) let's know if that helps, Mac. Um, Follow-up question as well. Does doing this show help edify your own ambitions and grow spiritually in the Lord. What's your motivation behind it? Well, I can only speak for myself. Uh, There's this fun principle we have in Calvary circles called the uh, four-generation rule. It's based on the passage Paul made a mention to to, in Timothy, where he said, uh, I've committed these things to you, Timothy, that you may commit them to faithful men who will teach others also. So Paul, investing in Timothy, who would teach and invest others, who would also be doing the same. The principle, and again, you can say this is anthropology, you can say this is anything, the rules of nature, as it will, as far as any move of God, doesn't last more than three generations. The first generation is seeing God doing something wonderful in their own lives. The second generation remembers what God did in the previous generation, but not in their lives, so they seek to maintain rather than pursue what God is doing in their day. And the third generation doesn't even remember what the first generation had, they're just enjoying the benefits or just participating in what the second generation uh, tried to preserve, they would usually abandon it at that point. So when we ask, so is every church doomed to fail after two generations? No, the solution is always be a first generation. Uh, Pastor Scott, I'm sure, could come up here and explain that being discipled by Chuck Smith, who had a great passion for Bible question-and-answer, for teaching the word simply, to, again, follow the model of J. Vernon McGee, to put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kitties could get at them, making the word accessible to people in a simple question-and-answer format. You can see it still going on today in Pastor's perspective. Uh, When we founded this broadcast it was a move of god that god laid on his heart as well as robert furrows to found this program so that people could also have that accessibility after the events of 9-11 or September 11, 2001, the terrorist attacks that destroyed the World Trade Center. A lot of people were scared, and a lot of people were also more spiritually aware of their need for these sort of things. So he made himself available. That was a work God did in his life. Now, I don't want to be the second generation to Scott Richards, let alone the third generation to Chuck Smith. I personally would have a different reason or calling, and it's, as you stated, not in terms of ambition, but because I have a love for God's Word, and I'm grateful there's a means by which I not only have the incentive—because I'm frankly lazy. If I didn't have the reason to study these things, I wouldn't. But also the opportunity to minister to people as God's equipped me. That's my reason. I'm grateful that other people have laid out this platform and foundation, but I don't have to do this. I pursue it because I want to not only have more reason to be in God's Word, but I get joy in just seeing God use me to be able to communicate His Word clearly. That's a gift He's given me. I want to be able to use that. Uh, Peter, what's... why are you here? <laughs> I trust it's not, again, borrowing off of Scott Richard's uh, Tailwind, it's your own. Uh,
1: yeah, so I, I have kind of a interesting mind. I, I I find apologetics, and I find this kind of information just very fascinating. Uh, I was studying this stuff long before I was on the show, and I, I think I would study it no matter what. Uh, being a part of the show, being a part of the broadcast, I think is a blessing to me. I mean, obviously, again, this is something that your your dad started, and I'm happy to be a part of it for sure, and I'm I'm thankful that anyone gets anything out of what I say, to be honest. Uh, if I were to kind of rank the favorite things that I do within ministry, this would—my uh, th- favorite thing is to counsel. I-, I love being face-to-face with people. I love talking to, th- talking to them, to minister to them, to listen to what's going on in their life, and to pray with them. Um, I-, I do appreciate teaching in all of its forms and facets, this being one of—I uh, I see it as like a teaching ministry in a way, because I don't have direct interaction with the people I'm talking to. So I do always appreciate that, uh, but but yeah, that's, that's basically it. Yeah,
0: so our reasons are our own. Just make sure that if anything you're being called to do by God isn't because someone else did it and you want to be a part of that. God's doing something in you. You want to be a part of that. That's the goal. Uh, questions from Abigail, firstly, regarding worship music, uh, when they also don't get things right. Would that be a source of uh, stumbling, or, of course, is there a... Music that we should or shouldn't listen to. Uh,
1: yeah. So the idea of worship music that that means that it's music that I'm listening to with the intent of elevating my attention to God, to worshiping Him, to seeing His worth and value within my life. That's the purpose of that music. That's the venue that I'm uh, enabling myself to go within. So if I'm doing that and there's things that are blatantly theologically wrong with the lyrics that I'm singing, that would be enough reason for me not to sing them. Because again, worship music is orchestrated, it's designed to be a call and response type music. So there are a lot of mu- uh, musical forms in which you're just supposed to listen to them, right? You're supposed to enjoy them as they're being sung to you. But worship music is specifically designed so that the congregation can sing out to God in one unified voice the theological commitments of our heart before Him. So worship music has a very particular design to it, and therefore the theological bar is, is high. I, I I wouldn't sing a worship song that had bad theology within it. Now, if you're saying, would I sing a song from a person that had bad theology? Uh, my answer is, yes, I would. Uh, there, there are people in the Bible that wrote songs that had bad theology, right? Miriam writes a pretty awesome song in the book of Exodus, and uh, she had some issues with her brother and with God, and she was struck with leprosy at a point. You know, uh, Moses wrote one of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 90, which is a beautiful psalm. Beautiful Hebrew poetry within that psalm. But Moses had a lot of issues, and he never made it into the Promised Land. You know, King David wrote the majority of the psalms, and he had many personal failings uh, within his life. So um, I, I wouldn't discount a song simply because the theology of the person who wrote it is off. I would have to judge it on the lyrics themselves. Now, I might caution people and say, hey, this artist, I'm singing the song, but this artist has some bad theology, don't uh, listen to them, don't see them as a role model, and every church, by the way, should be investing that within their people. We don't look to men as our examples, we look to God to be our examples, and we judge men based on God's objective standards. So, that uh, I don't know, anything you'd add to that?
0: Yeah, just um, the elder made an observation, said fortunately there are so many people who are expressing their desire to worship the Lord with great lyrics and theology, we can afford to be selective. If you have a check in your spirit, then avoid it. If you don't, then by all means use it as an opportunity to worship or to bow down, to recognize who God is. That's always the goal, and if it doesn't do that, then it's not fulfilling its purpose. Why listen to a song that doesn't do what it's supposed to? So that said, um, another uh, question from Abigail as well. By the way, great biblical name. um, Who wants to know, why doesn't Paul the Apostle mention worship as a spiritual gift? Well... Abigail, the spiritual gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are given to specific people for the benefit of all, but not everyone has them. That's the whole point of chapter 12. Are all apostles, are all teachers, are all prophets? Obviously not, but the point of emphasis for worship is because it's an obligation for every believer, and I can note that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 where it says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, how is this done? Every Christian should want to be filled with the Spirit, right? "...speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of God." worship in a nutshell. So if, and again, not just express, not just specifically, rather, through music, but especially in the form of making your hearts available before God, is making Him the focus, recognizing His worth. So that's the whole point. Every Christian should be worshiping, not every Christian should be exercising every spiritual gift. That'd be the difference. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I would just add to that a little bit. Um, what you might be asking is worship leading? Like, why is why is worship leading not mentioned in the gifts of the Spirit? Well, to be a worship leader, what it means to be a worship leader doesn't just mean, as Sean said, everyone's supposed to worship God. It means that you actually have musical talent, right? You have to have competency in music. That's why you're leading people in worship. So, And throughout the Bible, by the way, God does give particular In dwellings of his spirit to enable them to do artistic works. So uh, music is an artistic work. People can be moved by God, inspired by God. I'm not gonna get into what that means right now, but inspired by God to worship him and to move in his glory and his beauty and to exercise their competency as musicians in order to do that, in order to express the inner delight that they're experiencing at the hands of God. That's a very beautiful thing. But because of that, there is no spiritual gift that enables people to do... There's no specific spiritual gift that enables people to do specific artistic, artistic works, right? So there could be artistic painters, there could be artistic singers, there could be artistic dancers. I mean, I'm sorry, Christian dancers, Christian singers, Christian musicians, Christian movie makers, and, and the like. There's no specific gift of the Spirit to enable you to do art per se, to create art, which is what worship leaders are doing. But instead, the gifts of the Spirit orient to someone who has an artistic gift the gifts of the Spirit orient their artwork to be something that glorifies God. So let me read off a couple of them so you can see this. First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse eight: For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit; to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit; to another faith by the same Spirit; to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit; to another working of miracles by the same Spirit; to another prophecy; to another discerning of spirits; to another different kinds of tongues; to another the interpretations of tongues. So when you look at those, it's like, well, do you need? Knowledge in order to not only compose but also to sing worship music. Well, well, yeah. Because what uh, worship leaders are are doing is they're not just singing exact covers of the music that they're receiving. They're actually being inspired by the music. They themselves are being moved by the lyrics that are contained within those songs, and they're orienting them. They're actually changing them a little bit to suit. Their own behavior, their own character, their own tempo, their own key, right? All those things are being oriented by these worship leaders. So their knowledge and their own understanding is enabling them to shape that. Their faith in God is enabling them to shape that. Their discerning of spirits, their ability to to not only experience the lyrics for themselves, but also to feel what the congregation is feeling and to be able to sing back into that, right? Not only to do the call, but to listen for the response and then to engage that response in a way that honors God and moves people and helps people to, again, really consume the words in a way that are, that's going to bring them closer to God. So there are many spiritual gifts that are at play there, but the artistry, right, the musical gift, that's not given by the, the Spirit in this sense, right? That's something that's just, they're, they're born with it. It's given by the Spirit in the sense that God has given us all of our attributes and qualities, but it's kind of like your artistry where you're able to make tinfoil. It's not like there's a gift of the Spirit that gave you the ability to do that, but the gifts of the Spirit that you have help you to utilize that artistry in a way that honors and glorifies God.
0: Yeah, the why. And again, there were examples of people who were metal workers and uh, sewers that were used by God and literally filled with the Spirit of God to be excellent in these sort of workings. And it was for the purposes of God. It doesn't mean that, oh, I've never touched a, you know... uh, thread a needle before, let alone uh, made the tabernacle tapestry. Now these guys had hobbies, but God was going to use them in such a way where they not only knew what they were doing, but why, and in such a way where it would glorify God literally until the time of David. So that point being said, let us know if that helps you out, Abigail. Another question sent along to us through our website, Uh, we've got time, I think, Um, also from Abigail, who wants to know regarding worship. it points you to the Bible or if it edifies you? Is there a difference? And the answer is no. To be edified is to be built up in knowledge. To be pointed to the Word is the source of that. So it would be literally like saying, is there a difference between me getting there and going there? One will hopefully lead to the other. That's the object as opposed to the verb. But uh, when it comes to building one up in edification, it should always center around God's Word. And as you were stating with weird worship music and leaders and so forth. If they deviate from the Bible, I'd consider that bad worship, because whatever they're trying to make us appreciate more, it's not the God of the Bible. But if on the other hand, I were to take from that, and even in secular music say, this reminds me a bit of Jesus, it's pointing you to the Bible. That would be edifying music. So when people say, you know, this isn't really edifying to me, or I'm seeking some edification here today, uh, the purpose of all prophecy is edification, exhortation, and comfort, what would be a, an example of that with the minute and a half we have left?
1: Yeah, First Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. So the edification that happens within worship is oriented around our love for God, right? So if somebody is singing, no matter how artistically masterful they might be, and no matter how beautiful the lyrics might be and how God-honoring they might be, if the person is not singing out of a genuine love and adoration for God, it's like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, right? There's no, noise. It's just meaningless noise. There's no edification going on in that person's. Now, uh, because God is pretty awesome, He can utilize that person, no matter how off they might be, to edify others. But it doesn't mean that they themselves are being edified, and the same goes for you. If you want to be edified in your time of worship, orient yourself towards that. I want to spend time adoring God. I want to spend time thinking about His worthiness, His goodness, His beauty and glory, and I want that to move me, right? I don't want the music, right? The music can be beautiful, and that does have a reflection of God's being, but I don't want that in and of itself to be my mode of worship. I want my heart to be connected to God, right? If you have that attitude, you could even sing songs that are not very good in a way that honors God, and that's what God is listening for, and that can edify you for sure.
0: Yeah, the offering of a contrite heart, these he won't despise as... Something good once said. With that being said, uh, the music has just begun, so we will begin to cease. We'll be looking forward to the next time we have the opportunity to share God's Word with you. Pastor Scott will be joining us tomorrow, and I hope that you are all able to as well. Keep on sending us questions. We'll look forward to answering them. We'll also appreciate you guys spending time in God's Word in the meantime. Don't let us do your relationship with God for you. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time.